it, it, it gave me something I didn't know I was looking for, um, in a way that, that changed my life drastically and for the better. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. This is the part of the show where we normally play a song by our guest, but we're not going to this time out because we can't. Our first non-musician guest, Emily Flake, is a cartoonist for The New Yorker and has also had work published in The New York Times, Time Magazine, and many other publications. Her cartoons are wry, often absurd, but like any good comedy, always insightful. Her particular talent is for viewing the past with new eyes, as she did in a long-form, multi-panel piece for The New Yorker from 2017 called Young and Dumb Inside, a poignant account of her adolescent love affair with punk rock and how it has informed her life deeply. The first song she chose reflects this. California pop-punk band Descendants' 1982 song, Hope. The first song that I picked was um, Hope by The Descendants. Um, I picked this because the, the Descendants were one of the first bands that I ever like really got into as a kid. Um, like I, when my the very first bands were like REM and the Dead, the Dead Milkmen. The Descendants were like the first punk rock band that I ever got into, and that was that was kind of like the life changing. Um, moment for me. And Hope was one of those songs that I just, I listened to like over and over on repeat. I will say that listening to this song with 2018 ears, um, it's appalling. <laughs> like the lyrics are like, you know, severely not okay. Um, and to think of my like 14 year old self, like belting it out at the top of my lungs, I'm like, ah, oh, ah, geez. Um, this is kind of one of those ones I'm going to feel a little dodgy about uh, introducing my daughter to, but, um, but it, it did kind of serve as a gateway into, into the larger like punk rock world. Um, and actually one of my uh, favorite local bands, Forklift covered it. Um, and you know, that was like one of the first seven inches I ever bought, et cetera, et cetera. Like that, that's sort of like my, my first real link to the past there. Oh, so set the scene for us this would have been about when about where you would have been how old so this would have been um 1991 or maybe 1992 in manchester connecticut so i was um i was 14 and um yeah just 
it, like somewhere in the middle of like ninth grade, which when, when I went to school, um, middle, sorry, we didn't have middle school and high school. It was junior high and high school. So junior high was seven through nine. So it was like my last year of junior high, like right before I got to like real high school. And so how did you hear it? Did uh, you hear it on the, well, you probably didn't hear it on the radio unless you had access to a good college radio station. No, I, I sure didn't. Manchester, Connecticut was a little bereft of, um, you could pull in some stuff from Yukon every once in a while. Um, let's, but I would say my friend Gavin Sheehan, um, his sister Aaron, um, was super into punk rock and basically got both of us into it. So that was, though they were sort of my, my human link to that, to that world for sure. And you know, so you, you heard the song when you were 14 and I, I went back and revisited it and uh, I, I the the YouTube video I pulled up, I pulled up one, you know, I searched for, you know, Descendants Hope lyrics so that I could refamiliarize myself with them. Mm-hmm. And oh, my God, I'm just like picturing a little 14 year old girl listening to this um, sort of classic women are evil, you know, stupid rocks here. Yeah. It's like, it really reads as like an awful incel anthem these like to my, to my 2018, 41 year old ears. Um, the lessons gleaned from that song are not great, um, which could be said from a lot of, uh, of Descendants lyrics. Um, and I believe uh, it could be said of the drummer, which I hope is not a slanderous or libelous thing for me to say. But, um, but yeah, so it's. And I guess which begs the question, like, why this? Like, why pick this thing? Um, as opposed to something, like, that had held up a little better in terms of sentiment. And, I mean, the basic idea um, is that it kind of just immediately transports me back to a place in time when I, like, didn't even know any better. Um, and, you know, not that that's, like, for better or worse... It is it is emblematic of like, you know, my first steps into into a world that for all its sort of like progressive ideals was still like pretty deeply to use the parlance of the time problematic. Right. Were you um, already drawing and and making uh, comics, cartoons at that point? I was definitely drawing. Um, I had a fanzine that I started in ninth grade, um, so I was always I was always making like print media of one kind or another for sure. And what was the name of this fanzine? The first one I ever did was called Brick. I think there was like one issue. Uh, the second one was called Puddle Jumper Weather Stomper for reasons which are obscure to me now, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was basically exactly what you would expect from, you know, a a middle class, like, you know, white girl living in a in a dull suburb of a dull city. Uh, did you um, ever see them live? The Descendants? No, um, I did not. I saw all play, but I never saw the Descendants. Oh, right. That would have been maybe a little bit before that was possible okay yeah i wasn't that cool the second piece chosen by flake was a song by seminal early 90s band jawbreaker called fine day
so song two um, is Fine Day by Jawbreaker. Um, I am, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a huge Jawbreaker fan um, to the point where I published, um, I had a, a two-page comic um, about about seeing them again after like 21 years published in the New Yorker last year. Um, and I'm laughing because like, I feel like between this and I was on a panel for the documentary and the comic, like, I feel like we're straying into super stalker territory, um, which I swear is not the case. Uh, I seem to have just managed to, um, really gotten a lot of platforms on which to talk about my fandom of Jawbreaker. Um, so Jawbreaker were the first band that we were all just utterly collectively seized by. Um, I don't know why we were all so enamored of like the East Bay punk scene. Like it was uh, across the country from where we grew up. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something we could participate in directly in terms of like, you know, like being pals with those guys or like going to the shows, et cetera. But like, for whatever reason, like that was kind of like our North star in the central Connecticut, like early nineties punk scene. So I, I chose this particular song because um, at one point in the comic that I did about seeing them at Riot Fest um, last year, you know, I mentioned that, I, you know, I'm, I'm crying. And I actually cried when they played Fine Day at the show that I went to when I was like 16 because <laughs> I loved that song so much. Um, there's actually a random video of that floating around and you can see my little head bobbing around um, next to the head of my boyfriend at the time. You can't tell that I'm crying, but you can tell that I'm pretty happy. And and it's a song like many of their songs that like, I feel like this was when I started to have like the sense of, of kind of like just wanting to be annihilated by a song, like listening to it in this very sort of like physical way of where I just I I wanted it to kind of like crash on like oh my god I almost said crash into me and that's like a Dave Matthews song so just shoot me now um but you know this sense of of really wanting to like have the life beaten out of me or into me by a sound if that doesn't sound completely maudlin no not at all in fact you know uh, uh writing about music and being a big music nerd for a long time occasionally you end up at a party and and um you have an awkward conversation with someone who's not that into music but they're being nice and it's like so you know what what kind of music do you like you know which is of course the hardest question to answer because you know the answer is sort of all of it but what i always want to say and or is like what i'm looking for in music you know, there are a couple of keywords and one of them is abandon, mm-hmm. you know, it's like that sense of just everything that, that sort of makes sense or is sort of, um, uh, holding things together, coming apart. Yeah. And I, I feel like maybe that's a little bit of the same, uh, the same idea that you're, oh, you're getting for sure. There. I mean, we are, we're, we're sort of bereft of ecstatic experiences in, in our society, you know, like we, we don't have a culture like, uh, or, uh, or, a co- or a common religion that, that sort of like brings us into a space where we can sort of enter that plane, um, except for, except for music. And I think, I think that's, that's kind of like a necessary human experience for sure. And I think that like the music that really like 
gets to that center of you in that way is, is, I mean, that's what makes it important to you, right? Right, right. Well, I have to say that that asking you questions about this um, in some ways feels a little redundant because you did do the piece for New Yorker and you sort of, you know, spelled out, uh, you know, very eloquently and very amusingly what the band meant to you and 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 ways that sort of seem a little silly to repeat here. So hopefully uh, anyone listening to this podcast will go find it if they haven't seen it. Um, but. You know, one of the things that you you mentioned in the piece, and I'm curious, I was curious to ask you about, is sort of that feeling of of being let down. And you know, you in the in the in the piece that you did for the New Yorker, you talk about sort of you know the the shock and horror uh, when Jawbreaker signed to a major label, right? Um, and before you were you were um, something you said sort of reminded me of that idea of I guess maybe it was talking about the Descendants. Um, of that idea of things that you loved when you were younger and maybe you still love them, but you go back and listen to them and it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, go listen to this record. I loved when I was 14. It was so awesome. And then you listen to it and you realize it's, it's kind of bad and it's, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe a little dull and you know, maybe it has all sorts of horrible messages embedded in it. Right. Um, Uh, You know, we're talking about two different kinds of disappointment, but I'm curious about your experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll speak to the second one first, um, because it's, I really feel like the things that I listen to, what if I go back and listen to the things that I loved when I was, when I was 15, be it Jawbreaker Descendants or like 15 or Green Day or, uh, Crim Shrine or any of those things, I, it's almost like I, I'm listening to them in tandem with my younger self. Like my older self is aware of like, why these lyrics are terrible or why this recording sounds like shit or why this isn't really that great a song. But my inner 15 year old is still like completely on board. Um, and like that, that heart, that heart that loved it hasn't, hasn't gone away. Um, and I think part of that is because, I mean, I can't speak for everybody who was, who was ever involved in punk rock. Um, but I think for me and my friends, and I would guess that that a lot of people have had this experience. This was like, and I say this in the in the Jawbreaker piece too, but I think it bears repeating here. I mean, this is kind of the closest thing that a lot of us have to like a coherent cultural identity. Um, you know, in the absence of of like being tied to any particular like ethnicity or like cohesive. Um, you know, class group or something like that. Like this for some of us, I think was the first thing that really told us who we, who we were in the world. Um, and it's dangerous to have a sense of, of identity like that. I think that's based on, on taste because it can become something so different and it can become disseminated to the world at large. I mean, like we didn't speak of thing speak of things in terms of like, um, like cultural appropriation back then. And it seems like a little rich to call it, uh, cultural appropriation, but we did talk about things as being like co-opted into the, into the, um, larger culture and how much that felt like we were being, uh, stolen from, which, you know, Crimea river white kids, but, um, but still that, that said, um, your, your tastes, your tastes change and your mindset changes and these things will look different to you at some point, but that doesn't take away from the fact that like 
it was a very important person of, of who you were and the person that you became. Right. I think that, and it, well, I, I, I can say this because I know that I'm talking to a person who I know has a lot of similarities probably in our backgrounds, but I think, I think, and maybe you think or not, you can tell me that there's something about that sort of punk identity that wherever you came into it and whatever flavor was yours when it was important to you, that one seems to stick around a lot more than some of the other ones. And, you know, there are probably many different reasons for that. But and maybe that's just because, you know, I'm a middle class white guy who grew up a middle class white kid uh, looking for something very much probably like you were looking for. Uh, do, do you, do, I mean, maybe it's hard to have perspective on this. Do you think that that's the case? Like why you, why that seems to like stick with you in your whole life? You mean? Yeah. Why, why, do, why is punk so, um, durable, um, uh, compared to some of the other identities we sort of take up and maybe drop off? I think for a lot of reasons, I think because it had, it had such a community aspect to it. I mean, it had, a sense of like, we can do this too. We can put on our own shows and we can uh, start bands and start fanzines and be participants in this culture in a way that's different than just consuming the culture. Um, and because it was sort of, you were sort of part of this web of like-minded people all over the world in a way that was, was rare, I think, um, you know, before the, before the advent of the internet. Um, and because it really like it positioned itself in in opposition um, to the to the rest of you know society, <laughs> and I think that that sort of um, you know gives the young participant a sort of like uh, you know brothers in arms kind of feeling that maybe you don't necessarily get um, from other uh, you know from other like musical genres that you might happen to be into. Um, although again, I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are into hip hop or metal that feel that same way. Um, I think that I, and a lot of the people that I know, like punk rock really stayed with them for a certain reason, but, and I still know them because they're the kind of person who would have been bit hard by that particular bug, if that makes sense. It does. Um, it's funny. A friend of mine, uh, is known to say metal doesn't you don't choose metal metal chooses you yeah <laughs> do you do you still at some in some part of your your many chambered heart um consider yourself a punk i mean i'm 41 <laughs> um but yes um i mean it's hard to i feel like uh it's hard to like, it feels like a silly thing to say, but I feel because, you know, again, being old and having some perspective on things and, and certainly having some perspective on the machinations that would lead a band to say like, you know, sign to a major label. Um, again, you know, kind of talking about that idea of two tracks, like I understand why X, Y, and Z are like either silly or not useful ideas anymore or irrelevant or whatever. But the 15 year old in me is still like a hundred percent in. And I mean, that said, I think that, that, that the lessons that that 15 year old learned really like really shaped the person that I am now. And, and I don't think it's too, uh, 
overstating the case too much to say like really saved my life in a lot of ways. How, how do you mean? Uh, I mean, in terms of like, you know, I mean, not that I would have necessarily like physically died in my hometown or anything like that, but I think spiritually um, and certainly socially, it 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 gave me something I didn't know I was looking for um, in a way that that changed my life drastically and for the better. The final song chosen by Flake as being essential to her was the replacement's Left of the Dial. song I picked was uh, Left of the Dial by The Replacements and The Replacements are a band that I was always peripherally aware of but never huge into until until much later really until more like you know college or maybe even like mid-20s I don't really remember exactly when like and it wasn't there wasn't a moment where I started getting into them it was just sort of like slowly built up in me until I realized like the the brilliance of, of this band and Left of the Dial is one of those songs that it's one of the few songs that I heard past my adolescence that just brings me to a, 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 an emotional state that is is outside of of the of my normal emotional state. Let's say it really like does something to me. That like that makes me feel as though I did know it when I was 15, even though even though I didn't. Um, there's just, I mean, lyrically, um, I mean, it's 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 so wistful and sweet without being like treacly and and it's like there's just something about Paul Westerberg's voice, especially in this song, that's so like aching and cracking and like like like. I know that guy so well, um, and I don't know. It's weird because like I'm not Catholic, but I feel like there's just something profoundly Catholic about that song in a way that really appeals to me. Um, and the bridge of that song, I can't even necessarily articulate why, but I feel like if I needed a a musical mission statement of who I am as a person, like the bridge of that song would be it. Can you can you talk more about that? Why why is that the sound of it? Um, the sound of it, the sort of like like bleedingly hopeful crescendo of it. Um, the it feels like a very high stakes song, even though it's it's basically just about being on the move and uh, and like and missing somebody. Um, it. 
it's, yeah, I, I have a really hard time articulating why it means what it, what it does to me. But I will say that like, um, I can sort of accept people not liking the bands that were important to me in my youth, you know, like, you know, if you're like not a Jawbreaker fan or, you know, you could care less about, about 15 or whatever. I'm like, you know, I get it. Like, you know, it's, it doesn't really bother me that much, but if somebody like is outright like, yeah, I don't really like the replacements. I'm like, you're not a, you're not a good person. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We, we often, we typically talk to musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the conversation kind of more naturally tends to drift into how this song or that song, you know, shaped what they do or, mm-hmm. or, you know, is responsible for this part in that song that they did later. Right. I'm wondering how, how the music that shaped you helped shape your art. I think it was like, it's sort of a, an emotional compass. Um, I think it, it gave me ways to, to think about and live in the world, um, that has everything to do with not just like the kind of people with whom I associated with and like, um, what I kind of decided to do with my life, but like it, it gave me a place to hold those emotions until I was ready to make jokes about them. Um, I, I'm curious. I mean, the, the fact that you that you came to this later um, and, you know, Paul Westerberg is, is one of those is one of those people who, you know, had a lot of people on his side and not that they're not now. But then, you know, the replacement sort of fell apart. And then mm-hmm. he has been a little bit MIA, uh, at least in terms of putting out music in, in, in years. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, personally, I find it hard to be disappointed in him, though. I'm wondering if if how you how you feel about that. I mean, I'm fine with it. Like, I, I actually saw them like three years ago. Um, and they, you know, they played uh, Forest Hills and Queens. And um, I was I was too young to see them back in the day. Um, but my husband's 10 years older than me. So he had seen them, you know, a bunch in the 80s. And, um, you know, he was like, I gotta say, like, because they were actually like not drunk and falling all over themselves. He's like, that's one kind of experience, but this was like a better show. Um, so, but in terms of, of output or whatever, like, I mean, I, I'm okay with it when people just kind of like let the catalog stand and maybe don't add to it more than is necessary. Um, I mean, REM has probably put out as many not great albums as they have great albums. Um, yeah. And do you mean, so do you mean like disappointed in terms of, in terms of like the general radio silence or like, no, well, I mean, you know, sort of like we were talking about earlier, this idea that you go back to things later and you're, Oh, sorry. I misunderstood that. Yeah. Um, when you're older, maybe you have a little more, um, you know, understanding of these things, or I don't know. Maybe right, you don't. right. Gotcha. So you don't go back and listen to it in a, in a way that, like, you you kind of shake your head at your younger self. Right, or you don't think you don't hold people to the same standards that you you right. do when you're fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, which well, is probably a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, well, first of all, I think it holds up because it's it's legitimately like good music. Um, and 
I think maybe because he's always sort of sounded and, and seemed like an old man, like it doesn't it doesn't sound like kid complaints, if that makes sense. Like, like can you imagine Paul Westerberg singing about hoping some girl gets hit so that she comes back to him? No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it hadn't really occurred to me, but you're right. He sort of, even though they were sort of this shambling, you know, uh, at least outwardly immature thing, his songs were always a lot more kind of wised up than that. Yeah. And mostly, as I recall, a lot kinder to women than a lot of his. Peers. Yeah. As far as I know, man, if there are Me Too stories about Paul Westerberg, that's going to just. That'll be a bummer. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah.